the email's like, oh no, you know, it looks like you, you messed up and forgot your password. We're here to help and get you started, right? Well, that's really fun and playful, which works great for research sites. For a pharma exec, that was like, okay, well, who are you guys? Like, right, is this a small, tiny company that doesn't know what they're doing? So we had to kind of create experiences that mimic the needs of both audiences. Welcome to today's episode of CX Confessions. I'm Stacey Satterwhite, the Chief Operating Officer here at Koros, and I'm super excited to be joined by uh, Philippe Mesritz, who I work with every day, and I've had the privilege to work with every day for two and a half years. A little bit of background on Philippe before I tell you a little bit more about my personal thoughts on, on why I enjoy working with him so much. Um, Philippe has, has worked for more than 20 years to ensure customers are successful in the way they want to be served. Throughout his career, he has led support services, customer experience, customer operations team, as well as technical and customer success organizations. At Koros, he now leads, because I just asked him to, the, our professional services organization, and uh, he's also been named a CX Leader of the Year finalist for two years running. So having given that background, I think, uh, I hope our listeners understand now why I enjoy working with Philippe so much and the wide variety of things that he has uh, helped me with in my career here at Koros. So Philippe, thank you. A joy to have you oh. here today. <laughs> Thanks, Stacey. I'm definitely looking forward to the conversations. Um, I appreciate the invite. The CX and how it works and how the integrations with technology and everything else is absolutely this personal interest of mine. And a person like I don't say a lot of things are a passion, but CX is definitely one of them. To and applying that wherever that looks like. Yeah, I remember when I first took this job two and a half years ago. My title then was the chief customer officer. For an organization whose tagline is <laughs> we create customers for life. And that was a little intimidating at the time, to be candid. And I remember you were very instrumental in, in, in helping me understand, I got this. I know CX. We're going to do this great. And you did. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating to be able to do all of that. Um, there's so many different ways to look at it. And I think today's conversation will be really interesting, whether it's about data or about uh, interactions of, of different forms and, and different ways to deal with businesses. It'll be a, a good conversation to, to get into with the CX side of things. So our guest today on CX Confessions is Blake Adams. He's the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Florence Healthcare. He has over 13 years experience building and leading high growth marketing and strategy teams to balance metric driven performance with long-term brand equity growth. He has several specialties. They include accelerating predictable revenue, increasing customer retention, as we know, that one is near and dear to my heart. Um, and he, he increases customer retention through loyalty and expansion and customer experience. He also has a background in creating and dominating categories through brand and public relations strategies. He's a believer in building teams to create strategic plans and then of course execute that vision. He's also a believer and has experience in maximizing business value through aligning sales, customer success, and product. Also something that's near and dear to both Philippe and my hearts, <laughs> the, the concept of value, right? Philippe, that yep, sounds familiar. Absolutely. I hear that every day. <laughs> and then finally, scaling companies through data-driven experimentation. Blake is passionate, like I said, about building teams, finding and leading impact players, and maximizing their potential for sustainable, scalable, and repeatable growth. 
A couple final things about Blake. It's the first person that we will have interviewed or I will have interviewed here on CX Confessions. That's a fellow podcast host. He has a podcast, uh, the host of Florence Healthcare's specific podcast called The Next Phase, Exploring Innovation in Clinical Trials. Finally, in his free time, Blake sits on several nonprofit boards, consults with small and startup nonprofit organizations, and enjoys spending time with his wife and two young boys. Awesome. Thanks, Stacey. Like, let's stick around to hear what Blake has to say about creating a more inclusive, accessible, and agile customer experience in the healthcare industry. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Welcome, Blake, to the show. We're super excited to have you on CX Confessions today. Thank you so much for having me today. I think you hey, you may be one of our first guests that's also a fellow podcaster, so that's exciting. Makes me a little nervous, but that's all right. Uh, another fun fact about you is you were employee number eight at Florence Healthcare. For those of us or those of our listeners that may not be familiar, do you mind telling us a little bit about Florence? Of course, Stacey, I'll do it. Yeah, so Florence Healthcare is a SaaS company that focuses on eliminating fragmented workflows in clinical research and clinical trials. And so our platform uh, is used by about 12,000 research centers or hospital health systems in 45 countries and also used by most of the leading pharmaceutical and biotech companies in the world to manage their clinical research and clinical trials. Uh, for instance, we were used for most of the COVID vaccine studies and, and most of those different platforms. So, so yeah, we're kind of sitting in the middle there and, and enabling document workflows between all of those stakeholders and, and linking the world of clinical research. Wow, important stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, Stacey. We get to see some really cool people, get to meet some incredible thinkers and scientists and, and research professionals and patients. And it's a really neat, neat space to be in for sure. Yeah, I was going to say that blend between healthcare and technology is always a fascinating area, right? So kind of to continue that vein, you've got this experience background in healthcare, especially healthcare technology. So how does technology help that healthcare industry become better connected, patients, trials, really what you're focusing on at, at Florence? So how do you think about that? For sure. So, you know, the clinical research industry is really made up of, of four core areas. There's the patients, so the people enrolling in the clinical trials. There's the hospital health systems that are also called research sites that are managing those clinical trials and have that direct connection to the patients. And then there's the pharmaceutical biotech companies that typically have the drugs that they're trying to get tested and, and pushed to market that are having to link to those sites and, and patients. And then often in the middle sits a group called contract research organizations or CROs that are outsourced services for the pharmaceutical companies, oftentimes running those clinical trials. And so when you think about linking all those stakeholders, the experience is critical because you have on one end of the spectrum really smart scientists and, and professionals in the pharmaceutical companies who have medicines they want to test and get to market. The average clinical trial uh, lasts anywhere from three to five years and costs several, several tens of millions of dollars. Well, then on the other end of that spectrum, you have doctors and nurses at hospitals and health systems who know very little about technology. And so they have to have a, an easy to use experience. And then you can go to the far extreme of that and you've got patients who maybe were just diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer and have, have opted to enroll into a clinical trial. And so now they're trying to sign consent forms and they're trying to fill out documents and paperwork while they're also dealing with the realities of, of this major disease. And so you're kind of doing this full spectrum of individuals that all have to collaborate on the same platform. 
it's it's incredibly complex and uh, and and everybody has their own thoughts about how it should all work and how it should all move forward. And it's interesting to live in the middle of all that for sure. Yeah, and obviously what incredibly meaningful work to your point about all that the patient is probably going through at that point in their lives. That's a, that's a lot to try and bring together in order for the, you know, the common outcome that everyone's trying to drive for a, you know, potentially successful trial. So, so, so speaking of getting a lot, a lot of things to work together, interoperability is something that I think you've championed. So just these integrations we've been talking about between systems at the research sites and the and sponsors and vendors, it sounds like a, a little bit maybe equivalent to some of the stuff we try to do here in the customer engagement industry where we're integrating our platform with all the various digital channels and trying to create a, you know, a seamless experience um, for, for users. Talk to us a little bit about the challenge there and how uh, your company helps combat that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so ours is similar to customer engagement. Ours is site enablement is really where we spend our time is, is helping research sites do their best work because we believe that helps the industry move forward. The average clinical trial site um, for every study that they're running, so let's say it's a, it's a cancer uh, study, we found that they they log into about seven to nine different Ooh. platforms for every study. So that's that's seven or eight uh, different passwords they have to remember. And typically, when you get to a large uh, academic medical institute or uh, a large network or a large pharmacy network, they're running four to six hundred studies. And so, if you start doing the math, right, six hundred studies times seven to eight different platforms per study, you're in the thousands of logins. And what all? Like, I'm not a mathematician, but that just gave me goosebumps. It gives me goosebumps, <laughs> Stacey, all day. Um, and, and so the biggest challenge we see is a lot of these technologies were built for the pharmaceutical companies because, unfortunately or fortunately, that's where the money is. That's where it comes but from. What, right. That's right. But what ends up happening is the research sites get uh, technology forced upon them that that was not built for their workflows, and now they're having to work in thousands of different platforms and ecosystems. And so we really sit in the middle of that and focus on integrating all the workflows at the research site. So A, the research sponsor, pharmaceutical company, has a single point of access into that health system. But B, so that the health system doesn't have to duplicate workflows across different platforms. And they can do what they do best, which is spending more time with the patients. Because we we believe, you know, opposite of maybe some social media platforms, the less time people spend in our platform, the better. Uh, and so for us, if they can get their work done really fast, it means that they're spending more time with that patient who's going through the clinical trial, which is really important to us. So I think that's where integrations and inter interoperability, Stacey, comes in. And I, I think on the flip side, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, you know, healthcare is a heavily regulated industry, both from the government side as well as at pharmaceutical companies. And so there are some realities and limitations as well to how we can think about that, uh, which creates for me a, a really interesting space to play in for sure. Yeah, the, the, hip, the HIPAA technology side of things is always interesting. And you're playing on the more research and pharma space, but you're going to have to really collaborate around what makes sense, what does the law require, and all of those kind of things. And it's obviously a complex space to be in, but being able to collaborate across these businesses, being able to really think about how everybody works together is a key component of way that you do business. And so not only you, every organization out there has the same challenge. But so how do you think about Florence championing those clinical research that are faster, more accessible, more inclusive, but also in terms of how do we get to more accessible, inclusive customer experience? not just around the healthcare side, but any other industry that has a customer space? Sure. What a great question. Um, you know, 
there's big pushes right now from the FDA here in the States, EMRA and, and other organizations globally. The average clinical trial typically only has about 3 to 4% of the patients are from a uh, um, diverse background. And so if you're trying to get your, your drug right into a very diverse patient population, you want it to reflect the population that is actually using that drug. And so what's happening right now is a big push is from the FDA to make clinical trials more inclusive and diverse. I love you use those words. And what's happening to make that happen is the engagement of what we call frontier sites. And these are research sites who are brand new to clinical research and live on the fringes. Uh, you know, historically, it's been major academic medical centers and city centers that have ran clinical research. Well, if you're living in, and I live in Georgia, if you're living in extreme South Georgia, driving four hours twice a week when you're dealing with cancer to come into the, to downtown Atlanta, navigate a city, navigate a complex work is really difficult. And so thinking about that patient experience, which are the customers, right, in our case, thinking about that patient experience, not only in how they interact with technology um, like Florence, but in how they interact with the providers, how they interact with the pharma companies, how they interact with the, the various people in this group. And, you know, typically when somebody en enrolls in a clinical trial, especially if they're dealing with something like cancer, they are expecting a higher level of care than they may have with, um, with a standard of care. And oftentimes, technology gets in the way of that, right? And so we want to create that experience for them. And I think this translates when you think of diversity um, in the user experience is really there's very few technologies today uh, or platforms or SaaS platforms that are not used by extremely different groups of stakeholders, right? Even, even social media, I think it goes from, from my, uh, me uh, up to my grandmother who's still you know, pretty active on, on social media. And so they have to cater to that entire spectrum, not only in age, but in demographics. When we think about clinical research, and I'll end here, you know, not only are we dealing with, um, with that but if you think of a patient who's, who's got Alzheimer's, as an example, um, or dementia, and you're asking them to put in information on their cell phone, right? Well, uh, A, there's the, the act of actually doing that. And B, a lot of time patients are having to do that three to four times a day. And if they live in a very rural area with no internet, like how are you going to think about connecting to those people? And so it gets really interesting to start thinking about uh, diversity and inclusion in clinical research in multiple areas for sure. And I'm sure that in, in, in your particular space, because of the age ranges, there's a huge complexity. It's as simple as, and not a clinical research trial, but my mother-in-law went to go get a dental appointment and they handed her an iPad and said, fill this in. She immediately walked out and made her a new appointment where my mother, where my wife went with her to the appointment to get it scheduled up because she's like, I know how to push the buttons, but that's about it. And what if I run into a problem and I don't want to look... Like, I don't know what I'm talking about and all those things. So that inclusion is really important. Um, and then you add the lat layer of terminal illnesses or, or other things that just makes it very difficult. It, it's so true. Uh, you know, we, we see, we, so we have an e-consent platform, which I love that you just talked about it, is, is the ability <laughs> to, to do that consent electronically. And what we've seen are, you know, healthcare, and I think every industry goes through this, but healthcare and especially clinical trials, you have to match the pace of innovation with the pace of the patient po or the population, right? And so we could go as far as having animated videos and, and interactive environments. But what we found is our e-consent is designed very simply where it's literally a paper version or an electronic version of the paper version, which seems for somebody that loves technology is like, my goodness, we could do way better than this. But like you just said, the reality of somebody moving, you know, they're signing a multi-page document that's very intense and often very emotional. Uh, and they could be on a full spectrum. It, it could be a mom who's signing it on behalf of their kids, which happens a lot of times. 
It could be somebody signing it on behalf of someone who's who's in a coma, right? And so you're trying to navigate that experience. And so even down to thinking of customer experience, even down to the um, the way that we design the interface, we had a lot of back and forth on kind of these really fun type graphics. But then the reality that somebody who's doing a consent document is probably not in a place that they want to see a smiling, jumping individual like clapping because they signed their document, right? And so when you think about, yeah, you signed your document, you could do fireworks and those kind of things, which works great, you know, when you buy a stock. Uh, when you just sign the document that you want to participate in a clinical trial, maybe not fireworks, right? And so you got to kind of think about that that experience across the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. About the 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 patient experience, and to, and to Philippe's point, a wide variety of uh, demographics and and everything. It, it it definitely sounds like a design challenge, which I'm sure you've uh, you. It sounds like you've thought through. Okay, a crystal ball question before we dive into some more specific questions to get to know you, the person. Our crystal ball question is, where do you see healthcare technology going in the future? And is there anything that you'd really love to see happen or something you see trending right now? That's a great question. You know, where I see it going is uh, is in, and you said the word earlier, interoperability and integrations. Um, you know, Right now, there are ideas that we should have a unified platform, right? Where everybody's using the same platform across every ecosystem. And the reality is, as much as a vendor, we would love that. The reality is that's not going to happen. Every research site, every hospital, every system really has unique needs and unique capabilities. And there's also benefits with having uh, competing vendors out there. But the ability to integrate competing systems is really critical because ultimately we all want to make the patient's life better. And so I think that's a big part is interoperability. And I think the second big thing happening is uh, patient ownership of their data. And so you see this happening a lot more now where even clinical trials are very hard to enroll in. If you have a a certain type of cancer, and, and keep going back to oncology, but if you have a certain type of cancer, Unless your doctor or provider is aware that there's a clinical trial that is is targeting that, you're you're not going to know about it, right? Like you're not going to be able to find that unless you're really savvy and you know to start calling Pfizer and all these companies. You're not going to know that those those clinical trials exist. And so I, I do see a future too where the patient has more control over their own data and is able to self opt into maybe searchable databases where they can be identified for um, for clinical trials or, or identify clinical research. Uh, and so I think that's a big push as well is, is you know, um, really democratizing the ownership of data uh, when it comes to your your patient data. And even simple things, Stacey, like, you know, if if I'm at, uh, you mentioned dentist earlier, Philip, you know, if I'm at, at the dentist and, and I change dentist, right? Uh, gosh, I've got to get paper binders that I take to my new dentist of all my historic records. And there's no connection of these things, right? Where if I had my own ownership of all my data, um, it would really create a, an awesome experience for me, the patient. And so patient centricity, I think Stacy's the big push right now. And, and we'll see some big changes there in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. And I think then there's some element of ownership too, from a patient standpoint, right? Each of us needs to needs to own that. And that's a, and that's a little bit of a change for maybe where we were when we grew up from, you know, just listening to providers be a little more prescriptive versus to your point, taking, taking a little more ownership about that. But then there's also that element of uh, availability, right? Today, I can only imagine how hard it is for a patient to find any kind of information about trials that might benefit them. So the, the coming together of those two themes, things seems to be pretty powerful. It does, Stacey. You know, as I mentioned earlier, right now what you have to do is you have to get lucky that your that your provider knows about the clinical trial. 
you know, imagine a future where you're in the clinic and and they've identified some blood pressure issue and it, it automatically then shows you five or six drugs that are being tested that can help with that, right? Like that's a that's a really great area where you're not relying on the the network of your provider who has to know about these people, but you're really relying on the network of the technology. So I think there's a lot of exciting things going on there for sure. Yeah. I think that I think that network of the provider is that critical piece because a lot of our providers they're specialists in their own space and they don't know everything. Expecting a doctor to know everything is, is just never going to happen. And so how do we help drive that? I don't know whether it's an e-commerce version of trials or whatnot, but uh, something that allows that. But kind of to, to, to throw a little bit of a curveball at you, when you think about the standard beliefs, the standard practices that, you're, that exist in your industry, what is something that you passionately disagree with? Something that you go, this is wrong and this is my belief. Gosh, what a great, what a great question. Um, you know, I've got to be careful here because my director of compliance <laughs> might listen and come find me. But um, no, I think that, you know, the big thing I probably disagree with is the interpretations of regulations. What do I mean by that, right? We often hear that the FDA is is obviously very, um, uh, has, has extreme oversight of clinical research for good reason. But what we often hear is that the pharmaceutical companies will limit the innovation of technology and they throw it back on the FDA and they say, hey, well, the FDA said we had to do this, right? And then what ends up happening inevitably almost every time is the FDA or other regulatory bodies say, no, we never said you had to do that, right? You interpreted our guidance in that way. And so we see we see biopharma, pharma tech companies, and even research health systems limiting the pace of innovation because they believe it goes outside the bounds of governmental regulations, when in reality, the regulations are not as strict as a lot of people think there are. Um, and so we see that manifest itself in ways like documents, the way documents can be exchanged, the way documents can be shared, uh, which aren't actually regulations, but because they're the, the industry is so scared of breaking what rules there are, because if you break them, right, you do potentially go to jail and you get multi-million dollar fines. And so there are good reasons there. And so the industry is so scared of breaking those more uh, narrow regulations that they broaden it to kind of have a degree of, of variable of, you know, 40 or 50% on either end. Uh, and that prevents a lot of innovation in the space. So I think really spending more time understanding what can we actually do is, a, is an area that I think we need to do more of as an industry here in the, in the research healthcare space. Your, your comments on inter, interoperability where each provider has their own thing. Going to multiple doctors, same idea uh, in a much more broad statement. You have to manually transfer. You have to do all these things. It's like, well, why can't we have a single database? Well, because of HIPAA laws, because of this. And the question that I've always got is, is that really the case? It sounds like mm -hmm. the, potentially the answer is no. <laughs> uh, I will, uh, for those who can't see, because we're on audio, I'm nodding vigorously, but I'm also not saying a lot, uh, a lot there. But yes, I completely agree with you. So that's yeah, why I well, said potentially. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. One final thought on that: I did spend some time at an EHR and our electronic health records company, and say, sure. yeah, same thought. I mean, I it, it's hard when you're you know the head of compliance or the head of product uh, at a company like that to make sure sure that you are complying with the regulations. Because to your point, Blake. The, the the implications of not are steep. So yeah. yeah, for sure, it's interesting to think about the cost of that decision or taken too extreme, then you're overprotecting and then limiting advancements that we could probably all benefit from. So wow, how cool it would be if we could uh, find that balance maybe a little bit better. 
Yeah, and Stacey, I love that. And I love that you spent time in an EHR. They're often in the news for things like this, where, you know, there's also the business side, right? If, if a business case is we want to limit how our data is shared outside our ecosystem because we're more likely to maintain that business, right? If I work for any other company, I probably don't want to be super interoperable because it creates a moat around my business. And I think it's balancing that fine line of the business needs with the needs of the the healthcare industry, where then you kind of got to say, well, gosh, if we're not sharing data and we're not opening APIs and we're not creating connectivity, are we limiting the pace of scientific innovation? And I think what we often see, and this this is my final example here, is you know, the pace of scientific innovation is absolutely phenomenal right now. You hear CAR-T therapy, you hear uh, all these things Moderna and others are doing, but the capacity of clinical research to test all of that innovation is only about 38% of what's needed. So you see about 60%, give or take, of these medical advancements get stalled because there's not enough capacity from patients and from operational capacity to actually run those clinical trials. And we saw this amazing glimmer of hope during COVID where a lot of that was broken down and you saw barriers get get pushed aside and you saw collaborative ecosystems happen and and connectivity, whatever you may believe about some of that. Like you, you saw this collaboration happening that imagine if that same level of collaboration and connectivity happened for cancer research or for diabetic research or asthma, like what would that look like for the industry? And so I think there's some glimmers of hope out there of what connectivity can look like while also maintaining the reality of a business organization. So, yeah, interesting stuff. In fact, you talked a little bit about data and some of the complexities there. Since uh, we're here talking about customer experience, tell me a little bit about what kind of data is most important to you. And maybe that's patient data and not customer data, but talk to me a little bit about the data that you like to see that's important to you and what you do. Sure. So we... um there are some great patient data companies out there, Stacey. I'm glad you mentioned that. We are not one. We, we don't focus a lot on patient data. We do focus on customer data. And the reason for that is we want our customers who are primarily research sites to be able to do their best, best work, right? And, and that means identifying things that are slowing down their process. So for instance, when an organization prior to Florence uh, was a major academic in the Midwest, they were averaging about 16 days to get an electronic signature on a on a contract, oh, wow. right? Well, if you need about 40 electronic signatures to get a clinical trial started and you need to wait and do them in sequence and in order, the average clinical trial takes about nine to 10 months to get started in academic. Well, that's nine or 10 months that a patient who, who maybe um, needed a cancer therapy and was in their 10 months of terminal illness, like didn't get it because the, the organization couldn't get, couldn't get set up and running, right? So there's real life implications of inefficiencies. And so what we help uh, organizations do through customer data is identify those inefficiencies and and nail them down. And so, for instance, that same organization, which was averaging 15 to 17 days, dropped it to three hours, right? Oh, nice. Uh, Now, a lot of the reason for that is prior to to Electronic with Florence, they were literally having to put people on shuttle buses around their their (laughs) health system uh, to go find the doctor to get them (gasps) to sign the piece of paper. And then the doctor inevitably would have moved on to another uh, class if they were a teaching doctor or moved on to another clinic. And so it would take 15 to 70 day, 17 days to finally track down the doctor to get them to sign the document. And so now they can push that out. So our data, Stacey, really centers around operational data when it comes to how the sites are operating and how the sponsors or pharmaceutical companies are operating and where we can eliminate some of those barriers to increase capacity. The, the other example I'll give is, um, this is going to sound archaic, but uh, pharma companies, what they do traditionally is they have what's called a CRA, which is a, a clinical research associate. 
And let's mm-hmm. say they're running a clinical trial uh, at, I live in Atlanta, at Emory here in Atlanta. And that CRA will literally get on an airplane about three times a quarter to travel down to Emory, to spend three days at Emory, going through all their paperwork to make sure it's, it was done right, right? And, and then they'll fly home, they'll come back in three months, they'll do it again. And so there's no proactive yeah. like operational insights into what's actually going on. And so our, our mission is to get data that helps eliminate those. That's drawing a lot of lines and chasing people. It's like spy work. You gotta go find these things. It, it 100% <laughs> is, it 100% is. All right, uh, confession time. What's the hardest lesson that you've learned on this journey through your time with your customers and and patients? That's a great question. Um, You know, the hardest lesson, uh, the hardest lessons I'll give two. The the first is that, as we mentioned earlier in in this episode, the revenue, fortunately or unfortunately, is primarily centered at pharmaceutical biotech companies. And so, they're the, ones, they're the buyer. They're the buyer. They're okay. the buyer either the directly buyer. or indirectly. So it's okay. either that they're buying it or the research side is getting reimbursed for the cost of our software. Okay. And so they have the money, right? And so any business is typically and and is smart to build for the buyer. But the reality is the research site, which is where the work gets mm. done, we mentioned this earlier, uh, mm-hmm. is who is benefiting from the workflows and who can have the most efficiency gain from the workflows, but the needs of the site and the sponsor are different. And, and so it's it's navigating that reality of how do we maintain our site-first posture? And that's how we've won is by building the best customer experience for research sites. We're, we're number one rated on G2. And how do we maintain that while also realizing the needs of the ones who are spending the money and buying the software solutions and trying to create that connection. And that's really what we spend a lot of our time doing is trying to bridge the gap or link those two ends of the ecosystem in order to figure out how do we build for one while getting the funding from the other. So um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where we spend a lot of time. And I think it's the hardest. I think the other, Stacey, you know, the other confession there is uh, – we started our journey, and, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast. I've been with Florence for, for a really long time since we were a small company. And we started our journey building for just research sites. And they were they were the ones buying our software. And so we built a lot more emotionally focused content and experience because a lot of times the people in the buying role at a hospital health system moved up from research nurse to, uh, to, to head nurse to then overseeing clinical research. And so they are not always focused on the numbers or the finances or the revenue. They're focused on the experience of the patient. And when we moved and started selling into pharma and biotechs, we we kind of started with that approach, which was let's make it emotional, let's make it storytelling driven. Uh, but what we found is biotechs and pharmas often have more business people in these roles. And so they want and expect the ROI, the hard metrics, the, the cost savings, the efficiency savings. And so we had to really start figuring out how to create two experiences when it came to our marketing strategy, as well as our experience within the platform itself. So, so sites want a little more fun. We have, and this is getting really deep, but within our platform, when somebody loses a password, right, or they forget their password, the email's like, oh no, you know, it looks like you, you messed up and forgot your password. We're here to help and get you started, right? Well, that's really fun and playful, which works great for research sites. For a pharma exec, that was like, okay, who are you guys? Like, right, is this a small, tiny company that doesn't know what they're doing? So we had to kind of create experiences that mimic the needs of both audiences. And I think that's the other confession, Stacey, is is what worked well one may not work well on the other side. I I mean, I think that aligns with a lot of the way that Goros does business, right? Because you got the 
customer and then you have their customers and users. And so thinking about it in a broad picture perspective of whose lives do you make better and how do you make sure that you balance both simultaneously? Right. Always about, uh, you know, the end user may not align with the ROI for the buyer. It's definitely a, ch- a challenge and even more so in a highly regulated space, right? That's exactly right. How do you, how do you, and, and I think, Stacey, how do you make the buyer care more about the experience, right? Because uh, if you go to any conference in this space that has both parties, the sites are always griping. The, the sponsors don't, don't care about our experience, right? And so how do we be the, the broker of that relationship and create the, the passion at the sponsor or pharmaceutical level for the experience of the sites that are they're running that clinical trial? All right, it's time to uh, get to maybe the most uh, interesting and fun part of our podcast. This is where we get to know you. So we do something we call Quick Fire Confessions. Again, the name of the podcast is CX Confessions. So uh, Philippe and I are going to just quick fire some questions at you. I will start first. Our first question for you is, what was your first concert? What was my first concert? Gosh, that's a that's a great question. Uh, my first concert I, I remember was Jason Mraz with my wife. Um, uh, yeah, I grew up in the country, Stacy, that did not have concerts, so concerts for us were like you know out in the out in the backyard. My first real city concert was Jason Mraz with my wife, uh, or, or then my my uh, girlfriend, I guess you could say. Um, uh, gosh, twelve plus years ago, but uh, but yeah, that was it. No, that's fun. How about the first profession or the profession other than your own that you would want to try out if you could? Gosh, uh, Imagineering, designing, designing stuff for it. You, if you can't see my screen, there's, there's Disney stuff on the back. Imagineering being a, an engineer designing things for, uh, for Disney or one of those type companies' experiences. Uh, my, my background's mechanical engineering, which I know is odd, but that's what I went to school for. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I love story. I love meshing storytelling and experience into a live, a live environment. So definitely that. Probably what makes you a great marketer. Uh, let's let I'll hope so, Stacey. We'll we'll see. We'll see what my team says when they hear this, if they agree with that statement or not. So love it. Okay. Hey, speaking of uh uh where you spent time in your past, what was your very, very first job? And it could even be the job you had in high school just to, you know, buy some stuff or your first professional job. Sure. So my my first professional job uh was running media for college athletics. So uh I helped Georgia State University here in Atlanta uh, start their football team way back in, in now in 2008. Um, and so spent three years there just starting a new football program. I was the media person that that made the videos and created the graphics and did all that and had an absolute blast, Stacy, doing it. Uh, but gosh, it burns you out. For anybody listening yeah. who's ever worked in college sports, it's it's constant all day, every day. And so that was it. Cool. So to keep from, to keep from burning out, uh, most inspiring book you've ever read? Great question. Gosh, y'all put me on the spot. I like this. Uh, most inspiring book I ever read. Uh, you know, I just finished one called Greatness, but it's all about how do you move from success to greatness in your life and what really matters. And I think it was a really cool read. Okay. All right. Last question for you in uh, Rapid Fire uh, Confessions. You mentioned you lived in Atlanta, but you were maybe born and raised in something a little bit more uh, rural. If you had to move somewhere other than Atlanta, where would it be? Gosh, great question. Uh, I would, we, we, we may one day move back up into the mountains. I was born in extreme Northeast Georgia in the mountains of the foothills. And uh, we, we could go back up that way, especially with remote technology. We also spent a month and a half in uh, Tuscany this year 
in the summer with our family. And gosh, it's just, it's incredible. Um, so I, I think between those two, my wife would say North Georgia so we could be near family to take care of our two little ones. Uh, I would say something like Italy so we can have a little more fun. Uh, so, so we'll see, we'll see. But one of those two for sure. Well, Blake, this has really, really been amazing. So good to uh, to get to know you. So good to hear about all the great things you're doing to uh, to help advance healthcare in our country and our society. Incredibly meaningful work. And uh, we're really happy to have had you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you both. This has been a lot of fun. And, uh, and thank you for inviting me to be on. Thanks, Blake. Wow, Philippe, what an interesting interview and the intersection of all things we think about from a customer experience standpoint that they have to think about from a similar kind of diverse user lens. I know I know. one of the things I've had you do for me is lead CX here at Koros. Would love your thoughts on, uh, on, on what Blake shared with us today. Yeah, no, for me, it was, it was fascinating to hear the, the perspective of how it works in a healthcare, more regulated environment. Obviously, most of our customers don't live in that regulated environment. So it's a different perspective, but there are a lot of synergies and our similarities. Um, they were talking about diversity and how you think about the age groups and how you present information. I mean, I think the quote that he said was three to 4% of the patients are diverse. And so obviously trying to get more, but including them and making sure that it's effective, right? And we do the same thing for our customers and have to think about accessibility and all these other areas of making sure that all types of people can interact with the brands. And it's just a very interesting way to think about it and making sure that user experience makes sense for them. And then he also talked a little bit about how different it is to to design for a buyer or design for ROI versus design for the end user. It's definitely it's definitely a, a, a difficult challenge I think they have. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a completely different experience. If you think about a pharma company wanting, here's my data, here's the information that I get from the trials versus a, a research team who's like, just let me do my job. And then you have the end users who say, just get me healthy. Well, Philippe, I think I could talk about this uh, at length more, but it's time to wrap up this episode of CX Confessions. Thank you so much for being my fellow co-host. This has been super fun. I know I get to work with you a lot on a daily basis and and what a joy it's been to do this episode with you. Thank you. Anytime. I appreciate the, the invite and the offer. Thanks everyone for listening to us on this episode of CX Confessions. We'll talk to you next time.